church. There are some clipboards up front. You're going to have to listen very intently this week. I was struck with a cold this past week, and uh, this is all the better my voice has gotten. So if it starts to crack up, the Sherman sermon may get cut short, which you may prefer. We'll see. So last Sunday, we talked about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem where he is rightly greeted as a king. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and we talked about how being on that donkey was a symbol of a king coming in peace, not a king coming to conquer, which is what many of the Jews were expecting. They were not expecting a peaceful king to come. But here we are today, one week later, And today is Resurrection Sunday. Much has transpired in that week since the triumphal entry. It's commonly known as Passion Week. The ministry of Jesus during that week was focused in Jerusalem and in the immediate area. But during the course of that week, it was a very active week for Jesus and his followers. There was much teaching that happened, much of prophesying of him. They ate the Passover together. A lot of praying happened, right? Christ went up to Jerusalem, and we talked about last week how before he went to Jerusalem, he had said, predicted his death again for the third time, predicted that he would die on a cross. And he went up knowing that that is what was going to happen. And he spent that week with that, knowing that was coming. You have during that week communion instituted at the Last Supper meal. We partake in, partook in communion last Sunday. But that was done within that last week between triumphal entry and the resurrection. And towards the end of that week, you have the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, one of, one of the 12. You have the arrest of Jesus. You have him being abandoned by his disciples. And you have Christ enduring criminal trials that were a mockery of justice. And then at the end of these trials, you have Christ is then beaten. He is then scourged, right? He is, endures tremendous torture and tremendous punishment. He is ultimately crucified, hung on the cross, as you're all familiar, and he dies. We, my family went to a Good Friday service at Sherman last Friday where they, they, they walked through that, the, the scriptures pertaining to it and, and Christ dying on the cross, right? And, and how it just feels like it's just the end, right? This is, we were expecting so much and, and here is our Savior dead, right? And you have at the same time that Christ dies is on Friday, And the Sabbath falls on Saturday. 
but in the Jewish calendar, the way that works is Sabbath begins Friday night and it ends on Saturday night. So when Jesus dies on the cross, it is on Friday night, which is surprisingly early for most people who are crucified to die on a Friday night. It generally takes two to three days for someone to die through the process of crucifixion. It's a terrible, agonizing, painful, horrible way to die. And Christ does it that same day. He has control over that. He, he gives up his spirit. But it, he dies on Friday night. And the, the Jews want him to die on Friday night so that they can get that body off the cross and get him in a grave because it is against Jewish law for a body to remain hanging through the Passover, through the, through the Sabbath. So they want that done. So, and that's part of the guards going and breaking knees and Jesus being stabbed and pierced in the side with a spear to confirm his death, but no bones were broken just as the scriptures foretold. But you have, <clears throat> he dies that Friday and he is placed in a tomb, but he's not placed in the tomb by his disciples. Remember, his disciples have all, have all abandoned him at this point. But he is placed in the tomb by one called Joseph of Arimathea, who is actually part of the religious establishment that actually played a role in the crucifixion of Christ. But if you examine the scriptures, you'll see he did not partake in that portion of the proceedings. He was a follower of Christ, sort of behind the scenes. And you also have Nicodemus, who you're probably familiar with from John chapter, John chapter 3, where he talks about you have to be born again, where Christ is talking with Nicodemus. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus placed Jesus' body in a new tomb, not an old tomb. Jesus doesn't have the dishonor of being placed in a tomb with other dead men's bodies. He is placed in a new tomb where no other body has ever been placed. He's wrapped in a clean linen cloth and it's done with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. And the thing that I found interesting when, when I was reading through the different gospel accounts about this, this mixture of myrrh and aloes, it said it was about 75, some it, John records it, but John, some translations say 75 pounds. Some say 100 pounds. So 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes are wrapped, intertwined in this, this clean linen cloth that is wrapped around the body of Christ. This is a, a part of the Jewish burial rites, right? They don't have modern embalming. He's not pumped full of formaldehyde. The blood sucked out formaldehyde placed in like we do today to preserve the body. This is part of their process, myrrh and aloe. <clears throat> but keep in mind, this all has to happen before the Sabbath begins. So this is all happening on Friday before sun goes down. And the scriptures tell us that as these men are doing this, that Mary Magdalene, and it says the other Mary, are observing this happen. They are there, they are watching. And it goes on and tells us that one of the gospel accounts says, and they go before the Sabbath ends and they purchase 
additional spices and additional herbs so that they can further go and honor the body of Christ their Savior, right? This, this one they've been following so they can honor him. But they do that, it tells us, they do it before the Sabbath begins. But they're not able to fully put in place that process before the Sabbath begins. Some additional information. You know, you know, we're all aware that there's a guard placed at the tomb of Christ. If you're familiar with the account of the tomb and the resurrection, there's a guard placed there. There's a seal placed on the tomb. But the reason it's placed there is that on the next day, which is the Sabbath, you have the chief priest and the Pharisees. They remember that Jesus said he would rise again. That in all their interactions with him, they picked up that he was saying, you will kill me and I will rise again. On the third day, I will rise. They remembered that. It was interesting studying through the different gospel accounts and you have so many instances where it says <clears throat> the disciples or the ladies, they don't remember that Christ said he would rise again. They're, they're so distraught with grief at his death and they don't remember him saying he's going to rise again. And yet you have the men who put him to death, who sentenced him, they remember, they recall it. And so then they go to Pilate and they request Pilate, Pilate, you need to put a guard on this tomb because his followers are going to come and take his body out and claim that he rose again because that's what he said he was going to do. And this is going to be even worse than all the other things he did before, right? If they come take his body and say he is resurrected, that he has power over life and death, it's going to be worse than him claiming to be God before, right? So that the tomb has a guard placed on it. <clears throat> it has a seal placed on it. So the stone is rolled in place and then a seal is placed there, which would be like a soft clay or a wax, which probably has a, like a signet ring stamp from the Romans that says, if you break the seal, punishment of death, right? To discourage people from coming and getting in there. So measures are taken to prevent Christ from exiting that tomb. And the scriptures tell us, the, so our text today is, we're in Luke chapter 24. I don't, maybe we had it on the screen. Um, it's my fault that it's not on the bulletin because I'm a procrastinator. But Matthew 24, but if you look at the end of, not Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 24. If you look at the end of Luke chapter 23, right before verse 24, it says, on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And that is in regards to the, the women, if you look up further into verse 55. Um, it says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So they watched Jesus laid in the tomb. They return, prepare spices and ointments, and then they rest on the Sabbath. They, they continue to be obedient to the law of God, even in the midst of their sorrow, even in the midst of Christ being in this tomb. They desire to honor his dead body, yet they also desire to honor God. So 
The passage we're going to look at in more depth is Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Here it says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the, to the eleven and to all the rest. <clears throat> Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So this, this short account, these 12 verses, give us just a quick encounter that first realization of the women and some of the apostles that Christ's body is not there. He's not in the tomb. So it starts out in verse 1, it says, on the first day of the week, which we know to be Sunday, right? That is, they had just finished the Sabbath, the first day of Sunday. I was thinking through this and the sort of why do we gather together every Sunday, right? If you look at the Jewish day of gathering, it would have been the Sabbath, right? That's when they would have gotten together, but it was also their day of rest. <clears throat> but we assemble on Sunday because Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. We do that in a memorial of his resurrection in observance of that resurrection, So it, it goes on, <coughs> keep in mind the Sabbath ended Saturday at dusk. So the sun goes down Saturday <coughs> and the Sabbath is over. And they had made the preparations, the spices and perfumes before the Sabbath began. And now they're going to use them to anoint Jesus' body, right? That's not the kind of thing you can really go do in the dark easily. This is a daytime activity but they leave early. Different accounts give different, different gospel accounts give different timings. Some of them say, you know, they, one of them got there while it was still dark, another one got there while it was still light. But they, it would appear that they left in time to get there as soon as the sun rose. Well, that's why we sit outside in the morning when it's cold and we wait to see the sunrise. But we, we, we usually wait till the sun gets above the trees because we're not, we're not that tough. <laughs> And this morning, Paul and I were coming over, and he's like, Daddy, the, I can already see the sun. I was like, yeah, we, we kind of missed it, buddy. <laughs> but we're here early in the morning, and that's the idea. We want to be here early in the morning because that is when they first came and they first realized Christ has rose. Something has changed. Something is different. 
But you see, these women love Jesus. It, it tells us that these women, back in verse 55 of chapter 23, it said these, the women who had come with him from Galilee. Galilee is not like close to Jerusalem. These were dedicated people. They loved him, these women. So in their love for Jesus, they return after the Sabbath to further honor him by showing loving care towards his dead body. <clears throat> and maybe part of it is because when he was placed in the tomb, it was so close to the Sabbath, maybe the men weren't able to fully do all the, the normal burial rites. Maybe these women didn't know these men, and they said, well, who are they to bury Jesus, the one we love? We're going to come take care of this thing, right? But they are there to honor him. They love him. Well, verse 2 tells us, <clears throat> and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, right? So they show up, they get to the tomb. The stone is not there. The tomb is open. That should have been shocking to them. They were not expecting that. Different accounts tell us, different gospel accounts say, as they are coming to the tomb, they're discussing, how are we going to get this stone rolled away? How are we going to do this? This is not a small stone. This is a stone that's large enough to cover a hole that you can place a body in. You can, um, two people can carry a body into this tomb. And generally, these stones would be rolled in, there would be almost like a groove cut into the ground that the stones would roll down into and they would seat in place and lock into that, that tomb. So they're, they're sort of meant to, I think one gospel account says that Joseph of Arimathea rolls the stone into place. So one man could possibly place this stone by himself because gravity's helping him. But now when you go to remove it, gravity's working against you, this large stone. But the stone is not in place. The other, one other gospel account tells us that it was the angel who moved the stone. <clears throat> and Josh hit on it this morning in our sunrise service. Jesus didn't need the stone removed in order to exit the tomb. In the account of John, it tells us that Jesus appears in a closed room with the doors locked in the midst of the disciples after this. So in Jesus' resurrected body, walls, stones, locked doors are no longer a constraint for him. The stone is rolled away so that they can see in and see that he's not there. It is not for Jesus to get out. He doesn't need that. It is for them to see. See the empty tomb. But it goes on in verse 3 and it says, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The body is not there. The other accounts, I think it's in John, tells us that. The grave cloths are there. They are in the place where he had laid. And it even says that his face covering is, is folded in place there. Right? It's neatly, neatly placed, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Christ is taking care of these things. He's like, oh, we're going to fold that up. I'm done with that. Don't need it anymore. But you get their reaction in verse four, verse 4. It says, while they were perplexed about this. So they, they get there, 
Stones rolled away. They look in. Nobody. Grave cloths. What is going on? And in verse 4, I find it interesting. It says, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So they're standing there, and they are perplexed. They're like, what is happening? And all of a sudden, there's two men standing next to them, right? And it says they're in dazzling apparel. Uh, other accounts say that they are, their appearance was as that of lightning. Clothes that gleamed like lightning, right? Further confirmation that these men are angels. But it's... As I was doing some studying of this, one of the, one of the men I was listening to has said, you notice it doesn't say <clears throat> two chubby babies suddenly showed up, right? Or two like floaty, floaty angel guys came, right? It says two men. Two men stood there in dazzling, or dazzling apparel, right? So whenever they, they encounter these angels, they have the appearance of men. The, all, we have all these different thoughts, these different things in our modern culture that portray angels in so many different ways, right? Sitting on a cloud, um, little babies, it's all not right, right? We know it, and when we look in Isaiah, there are accounts of the, the wings that the angels have, but they have the appearance of men. But they are there. And like I had said, other gospel accounts tell us that one of them had rolled the stone away. They were there for that purpose. So they're one of the roles of, of angels, you know, they are warriors, but they are messengers is, is one of their primary things. They're there to give a message. They are there to communicate something to these women. That God does not just... Christ does not raise from the dead and God just leaves an empty tomb and then just walks away and leave them to figure out, put together the details, right? He sends messengers, communicates. In verse five, <clears throat> says, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? So you, again, you go from perplexed to fear. These men show up, they are gleaming, and it says they bow their faces to the ground. And I think that points towards the other accounts where it says they were like lightning. They're so bright they can't even look at them. Okay, you're, you're blinding me. But it says in the, what these angels communicated, they start by with a question where they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's contemplating that, right? As they, this phrase, why do you seek the living among the dead? <clears throat> I like to look across lots of different translations when I'm doing my, my prep. And one translation that I, I like to go to a lot is the New American Standard. And what it says is in the New American Standard is, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And one is capitalized, that, this proper noun. Why do you seek the living one? This, this, this is the title for Christ now, after resurrection. He is the living one. Why do you seeking the living one among the dead? And then those... Tom Scriven recently preached a series in the beginning of Revelation where it tells us in Revelation 1, 
verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> Talks about the living one. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here we, in Revelation, we have a definition of what is the living one. Who are they? The first and the last living one. He said, I died, behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus was resurrected to everlasting life, never to die again. And it goes on and it says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He now has authority over death and over hell. And so then I sort of I go back and I read, read that back in, right? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why do you seek the eternal one amongst dead ones? Why do you seek the one who has the keys to death and Hades in a graveyard, right? Why do you seek this one who is everlasting amongst the dead? This is not the place to find him. You're not gonna find him here. This is not where he is. Why are you looking for the one who is the definition of eternal life and has authority over life, over death, and eternal punishment? Why are you looking for him in a tomb? That's, that's what I sort of break down what this angel's getting at, right? Why are you looking here for this? For this angel, this is a settled fact. This angel is fully aware of the fact of the resurrection, everything that has transpired. These women are catching up. They're late to the party. But for this angel, he's saying, why are you here? You're in the wrong place. You're not, you're not gonna find him here. Romans 6 verse 9 says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, right? So after Christ is raised from the dead, he is eternal life. Death has no dominion over him. He has conquered death. Thinking before <clears throat> last week, we talked about triumphal entry. And one of the things that happened shortly before triumphal entry was the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? Lazarus went on and died again later. He was raised, he was not raised to eternal life. He was resuscitated is how I've heard it put. It doesn't, doesn't lessen the miracle of Christ raising him from the dead, but it's saying his body that came back still died. It did not go on eternally. Christ, on the other hand, was resurrected into an eternal body, conquering death completely. So this messenger knows who Jesus is. He knows what he's accomplished. He has come from the presence of God to deliver this message. From the perspective of this angel, the resurrection is a settled fact. He knows all about it. He knows what it means. For these women, they're just putting it together. They're probably a little confused, right? 
And I was thinking more on this. I was thinking, <clears throat> you, you have people are all over the place on the resurrection of Christ. You know, we have, we have the conservative Christians who I think most of us identify with who say, yes, Christ resurrected, there is no body to be found anywhere. You're never gonna find it. You have others who might say, well, yeah, Christ <clears throat> resurrected, but it, it wasn't really like his body came back to life. It, it was sort of like his, his spirit came back kind of thing, right? So his bones are still in the ground out there somewhere. That's not what this tells us. It tells us he has conquered death. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, so if you're an archaeologist who's dedicated your life to finding the bones of Jesus, you're wasting your life. You're never going to find success. You've undertaken an impossible task. You've, you've taken on something that can't be done. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Just what verse 6 says. It says, he is not here but has risen. Right? Body is not there. He is alive. He has risen from the dead. And then they go on and say, <coughs> remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So it's not like these women are coming into this and this is the first time they've ever heard about Jesus rising from the dead. Christ talked about it. And I was looking through all the different gospel accounts of where Christ foretold his death and resurrection. And so many of them said he took the 12 aside and he told them that he would die of crucifixion and rise again. So I was, well, where's the account of him in Galilee where these women would be included? And Come to find out, Matthew 17, <clears throat> 22 through 23. Seemed like a good fit. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So many times when Christ foretells his death, it always says they don't understand. They're distressed. They're confused. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this doesn't compute for us. We don't understand. They are not expecting Christ to die and to be raised again. So Christ is pointing to, yes, I will die, but there will be victory over death. But they are confused. But it says these angels remind them of this. And it says, and they remembered Verse 8, their memory returns. These things make sense. And they say, oh, yeah, he did say that. I forgot about that. Like, it seems like a big thing to forget about, but they forgot about it. And I guarantee you, if I was there and I was them, I would have done the exact same thing. <laughs> I am no better. But it goes on and tells us, after they remember his words, it says, 
Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. So these women return to the disciples. It tells us there's 11 disciples, right? Well, I thought there were 12 disciples. Well, Judas, after his betrayal of Christ, is no longer present. He's separated. If you go on and read through the gospel accounts, you, you read about the death of Judas. So you have the 11 are gathered. These women go and give this information. And must have been so frustrating for these women. <laughs> they go, we went to the tomb, it's empty. Christ isn't there. We talked to an angel, and the angel said he rose from the dead, just like he said he would. And they're like, you ladies, you're crazy. You're seeing things. It was even, there's more to it than just them thinking the ladies are crazy. In that culture at that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even valid in court. Women were not given the same rights they have today. They were, you know, like, you, you couldn't testify in court because you just weren't, you, we can't believe you. You're just not going to tell the truth, right? So all these women come back. All these women share. Yes, they confirm the story, and the disciples say, I don't believe you. Seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them, it says in verse 11. It's ingrained in them not to believe women. Not to mention, this is a pretty wild story, right? You come up and you give me some harebrained, crazy story, I'm just, I do not believe you, right? It just further confirms that after all the times that Christ shared about his dying and rising again, and they were all like, ah, we don't know what you're talking about, right? They just hadn't taken that to heart. <clears throat> but it goes on and tells us, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Doesn't say specifically that Peter instantly says, oh, Christ did arise, right? Says he marvels at what had happened. He goes and he marvels at it. He has questions, like what's going on, right? It goes, if you look at the account in John chapter 20, which is what Josh read for sunrise this morning, it tells us that Peter and John go to the tomb, says that they see the grave cloth and they see the face cloth folded up in place by itself, which is an interesting detail. Whenever you study some of the apologetics they go through, because there's different theories, like, well, maybe the, the disciples did steal the body of Christ, which is the rumor that, so the soldiers that were guarding the tomb, when they wake up after being stunned by these angels, they go back to the religious leaders and say, body's gone, and an angel came. And so the religious leaders say, well, here's a story to tell everybody. Tell them that his disciples came and took the body. And if you get in trouble, we'll pay off your commanders so that you don't get killed, right? Because the failure of your duty post was death for Roman soldiers. So that's the rumor that was spread, was that the disciples came and took the body. <clears throat> but as you, if you study apologetics, they, they look at, so the face cloth being folded up neatly. Who's going to steal a body and take the time in the midst of a theft to fold up 
a face cloth, right? You gotta be really trying to convince everybody and not worried about getting caught. And there's Roman soldiers outside who are gonna kill you if they wake up, right? You're gonna get out of there as fast, fast as possible. Further proof of Christ's resurrection, of not the body being stolen, that face cloth being folded. This passage is just one of four gospel accounts that tell of the resurrection of Christ, of this first encounter of his body not being there. And the thing that I, that I took away from this, that I want you to take away from this, was that verse five was one of the things that I, I really appreciated, where it said, why do you seek the living among the dead? And especially that translation where it pointed out the living one among the dead. It's impossible for Jesus to remain dead. It was impossible for Jesus to remain dead. It's completely against his nature to remain dead. I always like these analogies. It's like trying to make a square circle for Jesus to remain dead, for him to remain in the grave. It's an impossibility. It doesn't make sense. You just can't do it. It doesn't work. It's against the nature of the thing itself. For Christ to remain in the tomb is against the very nature of Christ. Psalm 16.10, which was cited by Peter in the passage that Josh read for our scripture reading, says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And this was speaking of Christ. If God is, says he's gonna do something, he's going to do it. It's not possible for him to not do it. So he cannot abandon Jesus' soul. He cannot let him see corruption. And I, that, where that angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? I just was trying to think of like different analogies. It's like, you're gonna go out to the parking lot and you're gonna dig for oysters. What? Why would I do that? Why would you go to a tomb and look for Jesus here? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. You've embarked on an impossible task. Christ is not there. And I like that passage in Revelation that tells us because Christ is the eternal one, right? He has the keys to death and to Hades. He has conquered death. That is what the resurrection is. He will never die again. He died once for all. He has died in, in payment for sins. He was the Passover lamb. This all happened at the time of the celebration of the feast of Passover. And Christ is the greater Passover lamb. He is the best Passover lamb. He is the last sacrifice. So today is Easter. And if you are a Christian, Easter is a day, great day of celebration. Right? We celebrate Jesus' victory over death. We celebrate forgiveness of sins. We celebrate a way being made to be right with God. We remember Jesus is the Passover lamb. And we, and I'm all, we're reminded throughout this passage and throughout the, these accounts that Christ was fully aware of the death he would die. He went up to Jerusalem knowing he would be crucified, die on a cross, be laid in a grave, but and that he would rise again. 
He told his followers that several times. He was obedient to his father unto death. I like Isaiah 50 verse 7 talks about, is a prophecy about Christ. And we often get this picture of Jesus, oh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? Like he's, he's just like such a pushover. Like, well, Jesus was submissive to God and the purpose of his being here was to die for sins. And so part of that was to suffer some pretty terrible things. But it says in Isaiah 50, verse seven, it says, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. Speaking of Christ. So knowing all the things that he was going to endure to pay for sins, he set his face like flint. He went to the cross willingly. He could have stopped at any moment, but he, he did it in payment for sins for us. So today is a day of celebration. We, we celebrate the victory of Christ over death and the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, for this, this gospel account of the resurrection. We thank you that we serve a risen Savior, one who is not in the grave, whose bones cannot be found because they do not exist. We thank you for the power that Christ has. Thank you that we are followers of his. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your hymnals or look at the screen. 179, Christ the Lord is risen today. We'll finish with this song and then you'll be dismissed. 179. Christ the Lord is risen today, alleluia. Sons of men and angels say, alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high.